Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us this week in Stockholm. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, in this week's show, we're actually not going to be covering any specific hard news per se. We thought we'd offer up a kind of summer episode covering different aspects of culture. One segment from high culture, one segment from, I guess, more popular culture. The second half of the show, we'll be talking about the NBA Finals and basketball. But first, we're going to be doing something more from the high culture end of things. And uh, the data point there is 28 which is the number of paintings by Jan Vermeer that were gathered in Amsterdam in a unique mega exhibition of Vermeer's artwork. Now, the largest ever collection of Vermeer paintings is going on show at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam this week. Anna Never before have so many works by the enigmatic master been assembled in the same place. The show is an international sensation sold out within days that just closed this past week. 650,000 tickets were sold, but that did not allow everyone who would be interested in seeing that exhibition to attend. Adam, you are one of the people who managed to get in. How did you like the exhibition? It was fantastically interesting to see all the, to see all the Vermeers, um, or to see whatever, the almost, almost 80% of them, I guess, right? 28 out of 37 odd. And the thought to be to, to be in existence. I mean, you do get the impression of an artist who had one, essentially one register, like um, you know, who focused on these extraordinary floodlit interiors and their um, and their the light really and the coloration and the texture. Preoccupied also, I have to say, with um, gender and sexual relations. I mean, really, an extraordinary kind of insight into the Renaissance mind. There's one particularly stunning, stunning picture in which he um, he paints his himself, his brother, his wife, and and an anonymous prostitute in a picture with the wife as the procuress and his brother leering over this over this prostitute and and his and himself staring out of the painting. That at least apparently is the standard interpretation of the Vivere image. <laughs> yeah, I only got to go because. I own an enterprising friend who, um, who discovered the ins and outs of the ticket market and um, discovered that a certain number of the tickets, in fact, go on sale on the day for people who happen to be in the museum, the Ritz Museum. So if you get there early enough, ah. you, were able to, you were able to get a ticket. So it's really thanks to her that, um, that, I, got to, um, that I got to see the show. 
Yeah, this kind of bears on the first question I wanted to ask, which is, you know, in thinking about the kind of economics of this exhibition, I mean, obviously there were a limited number of tickets involved, but the demand sort of outpaced the supply. So what exactly did a ticket cost at face value? And, you know, was there a kind of secondary market that, that got established for these tickets that you could sort of purchase at a higher value? Apparently, yes. So the, the show sold out within days. Um, the tickets were 20 euros. And on eBay, apparently, one was offered for $2,724. Hmm. So there was, a, there was a huge demand. You did get the impression going around the show that this was absolutely a bucket list exhibition for many people. Uh, only just slightly more than half of the visitors to the show were from the Netherlands. Um, 17% from France, 16% from Germany, 16% from the UK, 14 the US. Celebrities, mm. uh, French President Emmanuel Macron attended, Steven Spielberg, um, Gillian Anderson, you know, um, really um, a huge sort of a galaxy of global stars. Vermeer is, has been an artist, of course, he's been very much in the news with, you know, in the, the featured and prominently in literature. So it was a, it was a, they capped the numbers. Apparently, the, the you, you know they could no doubt have sold twice as many mm. tickets. It was quite busy and crowded enough as it was. So, I mean, aside from the tickets, I, I I wanted to ask about the economics of arranging for this kind of exhibit in the first place. I mean, there are only thirty-seven some paintings of Vermeer at all. They're scattered in various places around the world, and again, twenty-eight of them were pulled together from these various places in this one exhibit, which is why it was so uh, unique. And that got me wondering, what are the arrangements for lending artworks like this? I mean, transport and insurance, I imagine, are expensive, but are there other costs as well? On top of that, do museums sort of pay rent for the period that they have the paintings from other institutions? It's interesting. There's a certain coyness about this in that, what at least I was able to find um, online. I mean, the... The, the general policy seems to be in the sort of, you know, professional museological position seems to be, no, of course, we don't charge each other. Uh, of course, there are, of course, there is a matter of, of you know, this is a matter of free lending. We are, we are not for profit organizations. And we, we, we like to share our art with, um, with, with other institutions. But then if you dig a little deeper, people will say, well, except, of course, against the full cover of all transport costs, insurance, necessary, necessary curatorial accompaniment, and, and uh, in some cases, something referred to coyly as a loan fee, which okay. could be an, you know, an administrative processing charge, but seems to be some way, at least, of compensating the lending institutions. Um, I mean, most art galleries, of course, have more art than they can show, so if a piece is otherwise being held in the depot, um, it, that's one thing. If you're if you're lending a Vermeer, it's another because it leaves a blank on your wall. Um, because you know if you own a Vermeer, it'll be up on the wall of your museum. So I think the borrowing and lending terms depend a little bit on who the museums are and, and what kind of a piece it is. Whether it's in a sense essential to the essential to the to the museum's identity or not. Because you know there are certain pictures which define a museum. And then there are interesting arrangements to make possible the lending of uh, of museums. There is a in the U.S. a um, a program known as the Art and Artifacts Indemnity Program, which is a publicly backed congressional funds, congressionally appropriated funds, 
back this, which which provides American museums with um, cover up to $1.8 billion um, for any single exhibition um, in insurance. So it's a publicly underwritten um, insurance fund that enables American museums to host major exhibitions and I think also to a degree to cover the costs of, of lending. It enables, um, you know, major exhibitions like the one that we saw in the Netherlands. It, will, it would subsidise those to a considerable extent. It apparently goes back to the enormous uh, Tutankhamun uh, exhibition of the 1970s that would have been exorbitantly expensive to insure if it hadn't been for the introduction of this program. And I have to say, it's, you know, as, as de-risking goes, which is one of the familiar ways in which government policy acts today, it's hard to think of a, a better way to spend you know, the necessary, um, you know, premiums that help maintain this policy, um, you know, it's hard to imagine better a better use for those funds. Yeah, I mean, I, I also wonder what kind of insight this lends onto the inequality of the museum landscape itself. I mean, how many museums around the world are even at the level of being able to organize this kind of exhibition? I mean, what kind of exclusive club are we talking about and what sort of resources are really necessary to have it at hand? It's difficult, you know, to be very precise about this one, we'll need to have a, a clear idea of how many art museums there are in the world. And that in itself is a contested question and, and one that, that that fluctuates quite dramatically because there's been a huge surge in the, a, a huge expansion in the number of museums around the world. One, one figure that you quite commonly see is 30,000 30, museums around the world with 200 million visitors. That tells you that quite a lot of the museums get very small numbers of visitors indeed. If you look in the in, if you look in the top 100 museums worldwide, the, the Louvre, um, uh, which in a good year gets about nine million visitors, is is by far and away the largest uh, museum in the world. The two biggest art museums in the United States, which come in the top ten, the National Gallery in D.C. just ever so slightly ahead of the Met in New York, uh, clock about three point three and a quarter million visitors, maybe somewhat more than that in a, in a good year, so maybe maybe four million. Um, and it, once you get down to the to the hundredth uh, most popular art museum in the world, you're, you're talking about 600 to 700,000 visitors a year. So there is a huge falling away, if you like, within the group of art museums in the world. And, and you know, probably, you know, as contenders, to pay the the insurance packaging, moving, um, curatorial accompaniment, uh, you know, you might be talking uh, maybe about that top hundred group as the sort of museums that would be capable of hosting a major international loan-based show like this. That doesn't stop much smaller museums doing very impressive work. In the end, after all, what you've got to do with the picture is you know, wrap it up in an import in a, in a crate, buy some insurance, which could be uh, you know a few dollars on every thousand dollar of the painting's value, and buy it a first class or business class seat on an airplane, and then you just put the picture in the airplane seat, um, which is how in the end you would move. You know, not Vermeers, obviously, but if you were moving artworks worth a few hundred thousand dollars, that might be the most, uh, you know, the most conventional and easy way, convenient and easy way of moving them around. I imagine there's an element of sort of cultural capital there as well, like in the sense of just these big institutions being in touch with each other already, or just sort of having the clout to sort of call upon one another in that way. Um, 
Absolutely. I mean, the Premier exhibition apparently came together um, as a result of the realisation in the Netherlands that the Frick Museum is undergoing massive restoration work in New York and there are a clutch of, of New York Vermeers that the, the Ritz Museum realised it might actually be able to get hold of. They might be available for loan. Hmm. And so it was an opportunistic kind of move to take advantage and to make, or to put it a different way, to make best use of the of the of the extraordinary collection in the Frick um, to to put it on display. So there's also there is an element of contacts. There is an element of mm. belonging to the elite club, and then there's also then there's also the opportunism of you know entrepreneurial curators re- realizing that key images might actually be available for loan. So I guess I wonder in black and white terms, after all the effort is put into this kind of exhibition, all the tickets are sold. I mean. Do these kinds of exhibitions actually turn a profit? Are they profitable overall? Well, I was again. It's it's a little bit it's a little bit difficult to get precise information about this. I mean, I dug. I looked in the accounts, for instance, of the National Gallery in London, which is interesting because the National Gallery doesn't normally charge for entrance. So you can see you can see um, you know this the all the element all the revenue they get from tickets is, is essentially from from exhibitions. But there's no costing, so the the revenue flow is the revenue flow is is counted as a revenue flow, but they don't account for the costs that are necessary to generate that revenue flow in the same balance sheet. So it's been quite difficult. But I mean, if we when you when you start doing the numbers, they're surprisingly modest. So the Vermeer show six hundred and fifty thousand people um, over sixteen weeks uh, tickets, shall we say, an average of. Uh, 20 euros ahead, not allowing for concessions on some, and everything else. So that's a revenue flow of, shall we say, optimistically, 12 to 13 million euros. That's, that's very small business business, right? This is not gigantic flows. The pictures, 28 Vermeers, I mean, if we conservatively value them at 100 million each, like you're talking $2.8 billion worth of art. And insuring that has got to cost you millions, right, at the very least. And then you've got to pay the staff, the curatorial effort. So, I mean, if they are profitable, we're not talking megabucks here. Like, I mean, if you if you add in the sales of catalogs and merchandise, say, you know, optimistically, we doubled our ticket revenue, we'd be talking about a revenue flow before any costs of maybe 24 million Euros, something like that. For this show, which we're talking about, which is global news, is an art historical sensation. And in any kind of major line of business, that's peanuts. I mean, 24 million is, you know, the revenue that a major corporation will generate literally in a matter of minutes. So there's an extraordinary discrepancy here between the cultural significance of having assembled, you know, 80% of the entire oeuvre of one of the greatest artists in the Western canon and generating headlines around the world and to, you know, two thirds of a million visitors and making people's lifetime bucket lists of art historical happiness and the kind of money that it moves in relation to this. And if you have a less successful show and, you know, significant insurance costs, significant installation costs, um, you know, I mean, 20, 28 million euros buys you a big house one thing you know in london that's all like so if you talk about the renovation putting the things up it's it's um i was really i was really struck i sat down to think about it by the modesty of the amounts of money that change hands here 
and overall the budgets of a museum like the National Gallery in London are which doesn't have a huge flow of revenue from 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 ticket sales are really remarkably small considering the cultural influence that they wield and the sorts of money that changes hands in the private gallery space as well where you know the sale of a single work of art for 28 million euros which we've estimated as the revenue of the Vermeer show wouldn't even wouldn't even make headlines at this point right that's you know some average Monet or you know some some Renoir would fetch that Lickety split in a in a sale in Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this exhibition only happened because so many of the artworks were in the hands of museums and institutions inclined to lend them and dedicated to showing them. And that got me wondering, I guess, as a final question about how this relates to the private art market that you're also mentioning here. I mean, when auction houses and galleries uh, sell works of art. Are they discriminating between buyers on these kinds of terms? I mean, do they ask whether the art is likely to be shown at all or made available for future exhibitions like this? Well, I think we need to distinguish here carefully between the auction houses like the Sotheby's and the Christie's of this world and the big galleries like Gagosian or Pace or something like that. And the Sotheby's and Christie's make the vast majority of their money um, as auction houses where the really rules of neutrality that prevail with regard to the relationship between the sellers and the buyers once the thing is put up for auction, they really do act as a kind of honest broker between various buyers. Of course, there's politics behind the scene, but broadly speaking, they you know, make the piece available for sale and there's a reserve price and then the buyers have at it. Um, they also have a private market niche within their business. It's a small fraction of their overall business. And in that, they go looking for particular pieces of art. You know, a museum wants a Picasso from the 1920s and they'll go looking for a, you know, a, fa- a post-Cubist Picasso for a museum. Um, conversely, they'll have a seller who knows they've got a, you know, a blue period Picasso and they know that there might be buyers that will be particularly interested in this and so they'll try and mix and match the two. In the gallery space, right, where the where the middle, the broker is acting not between a buyer and a seller, but between an artist and the market, the galleries are much more strategic. And they absolutely will, when they've got an artist who's in high demand, select the clients they sell the art to and offer it to. And it's generally speaking, not necessarily whether or not they would make it available for public exhibition but whether they want this piece of work hanging in somebody's mansion in the Hamptons, you know, that season, do they want this sort of, this this artist's work to be seen in that kind of location rather than another? Um, and when, when they're making the market for art like this, the galleries are extremely strategic. They will, for instance, buy large volumes of an artist's work on their own behalf and store it, if you like, until they judge the market to have reached its optimum point. So there in the, in the gallery, as opposed to the auction house, as opposed to the museum space, the galleries, of course, will put on shows, as will the auction houses, but the galleries are doing so in a much, much more strategic way. I mean, they really are branding, essentially, an artist in a certain way, making a market for that person's work, creating a narrative around it, positioning it in a certain way. So acting, of course, essentially as partners of the artist in the promotion of the work for maximum profit. 
Um, and so, yes, they're very, very strategic about who they sell to. Got it. Well, hopefully, yeah, it works out that we, <laughs> there managed to be other big exhibitions like this for other artists that, uh, yeah, hopefully I can also attend at some point. But we will take a break here and come back in just a second to talk about the NBA. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, welcome back. The next data point is 11.5 million. That is the number of people in the United States, give or take a couple hundred thousand that have been watching the NBA finals this past week between the Miami Heat and the Denver Nuggets. That's NBA basketball for the uninitiated. We thought we'd talk about the economics of one of America's most popular sports. I realize, Adam, that basketball is not one of the sports that you follow very closely, but you agreed to indulge this segment. Uh, so thanks for taking me up on it. Yeah, not at all. I'll give it a try. I mean, we're, we're here. Either you'll tell me or the listeners will tell me how wrong I'm getting everything. Well, I don't know. I'm not an expert. I I did play ba- I played basketball on my high school team, although play is maybe an exaggeration. I was good enough to make the team, but... Um, didn't play very much, mostly watching from the bench. But yeah, we'll give this a shot. So one thing that is true about the NBA these days is that the very best basketball players, including one that is playing right now in the finals, I'm referring there to Nikolo Jokic, are from outside the United States. So I guess I'm curious, when exactly did basketball become so internationalized and what exactly triggered that development as far as you can tell? Well, as far as I'm able to establish, it's a story that goes back to the 1970s. I mean, there's an interesting story to be told here about sports diplomacy in the 70s with ping pong, um, because it played a very important role in the, um, the you know, Nixon-Kissinger era of, of opening up to China. But <laughs> the NBA's first international exhibition game took place in Israel, apparently, in 1978, Maccabee Tel Aviv against uh, the Washington Bullets. Um, and... Obligingly, the NBA team lost um, 98-87, which opened the door to controversy and excitement. And um, the 80s saw you know, an influx of uh, foreign players um, to the NBA. Um, and in 1992, then, really, the NBA, I think, launches um, its push for globalization in earnest. I mean, again, you could say this segues rather nicely with the unipolar moment, the heyday of 
you know, what we remember of globalization when the NBA um, basically provided uh, America's Olympic basketball team. So the rules were changed so that professional players could play in basketball in the Olympics and the dream team so-called featuring uh, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird. I mean, even I remember this event. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, and I was not any longer young at that point, but I, I remember that remember the phenomenon of the, you know, these extraordinary legendary American players appearing on the world stage and they didn't lose. Um, they, they, they totally dominated. Uh, the NBA's first um, Chinese draft, uh, you know, hero was Yao Ming, I guess, who was recruited in 2002, uh, which helped to create the popularity of the NBA in, in China. And since 2006, really, the the NBA has been doubling down on its globalization strategy and, and the recruitment of talented European, African, Asian players to the league um, has contributed to that very dramatically in the last decade or so. Interesting, as you point out, and I hadn't thought about that, is how that lines up with the history of globalization or the kind of high point of globalization on both accounts in terms of the sort of corporate aspect, but also the cultural aspect. And yeah, and now fittingly enough, I guess, to sort of round out that globalization narrative, the competitors are now superseding the original hegemon, again, some of the best players in the world are from Serbia in Nikola Jokic's case, or Greece in the case of Yanis Antenakumpo, who himself is a has a migrant background to Greece, and yeah, the others from Europe and elsewhere. So in any case, I also wanted to ask about the economics of America's youth basketball system, which is essentially the kind of training ground, a professional training ground for the NBA you know, there is a kind of well-developed system that scouts and develops young players. And then the America's university system also plays a kind of distinctive role here. I mean, I guess that's another part of this question. Why exactly did America's universities become the training ground for professional sports, including basketball? This is a really fascinating question, very striking as somebody who's in the university business of how, what an enormous difference this makes because American colleges, as a result of the prominence of college sports, are so much more present in popular culture than their analogues are in anywhere in Europe, right? There's no, there's no huge, you know, gigantic, fervent, alcohol-driven excitement around any of the European universities. Uh, Sport. I mean, the sole exception would be the elite, you know, Cambridge Oxford boat race uh, clashes. Um, but they're very, very peculiar. They are televised, um, but they don't encourage. It's not as though the uh, large you know, chunks of the BBC's audience patriotically identifies with one or the other. But the idea that most Americans have a college team, which they are in one way or the other uh, associated with, even though they might not go to that university, um, is really rather remarkable. Although on one level, you'd have to say, is it, should it be surprising? After all, sports are things that we think of young people as doing, they are often very closely tied to education. Rugby, to name one major global sport, is actually named after a school um, because it was played first at a school, rugby school, a form of soccer where the ball was picked up and people ran with it. Um, and basketball appears to literally be the product of the YMCA International Training School, where which was in where it was invented in in eighteen ninety one as a as a kind of pedagogic, low contact, healthy pastime and you can see why it's obviously a you know a fantastic a fantastic invention um so there is this sort of natural association with with education and 
And then there's these peculiar trajectories that, that feed off that, right? There are some sports which essentially are only played in educational settings or professionally, but then otherwise not, like American football, which is just too dangerous for amateurs to play once they're adults. Rugby, believe it or not, which is full contact without armour, um, is played by adults in an amateur way um, with predictably disastrous results quite a lot, with quite a lot of the time. Um, but yes, Europe and indeed most of the rest of the world separate from the United States in that the United States keeps its athletic development in large part, not exclusively, and the NBA is quite different from American football where virtually no one comes from outside the college system. The NBA now, the Europeans and the Africans who get recruited to the NBA don't, after all, many of them come through the college system, but laterally in. And you can apparently qualify for the NBA draft with just one year after finishing high school, which is where many of the supremely best players never even entered the college system in the US. But this college base remains, whereas in Europe and in Africa and in Latin America, the standard model is either is one or other form of academy, which is a specialized training school for kids from the age of about 11. And when you're talking gymnastics, it's an even earlier stage where the super supremely talented young people are taken away from normal education. And either it's a freestanding, like in a tennis academy type setting, or they're club affiliated academies like in soccer, where the scouts will literally go out all over Latin America and Africa and find the most talented Cameroonian 11 year olds and bring them to Barcelona or London where they then they receive some regular academic education, but their entire lives are basically sports boarding school. And the consequence of that for players' psychology is, has been documented, I think, most graphically in the individual sports. I think it's most, 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 you know, Andrew, Andrew, Andrew Agassi has been very forthcoming about the, the, the damage that this did to his psychology, the, you know, the healing nature of his relationship with Stephanie Gra uh, Steffi Graf, rather, rather touching story, actually, of kind of recovery. In team sports, it's brutal, but at least it's a kind of collective experience, I think. And there's an argument as to whether or not what kind of an athlete that produces. I gather there are some owners in the NBA who now prefer the Europeans. Europeans derive from all over the places Europe derives its population nowadays. Of course, many Cameroonians and Africans play in Europe because they, quote unquote, get taught the game unlike kids who come off the, quote unquote, street in the United States. You can see all of the kind of cultural baggage that this kind of commentary uh, is associated with from an educator from an educator's point of view one has to say that the american system though weird and though it clearly warps the agenda of many colleges and produces very strange you know phenomena in the form of one lot of college kids wearing the name of another college kid on the back of their jersey. i mean to a european un unthinkably weird <laughs> star cult personality cultures Nevertheless, it keeps the athletes in education, maybe in a relatively rudimentary form, but it at least establishes a more, you know, a set of constraints on the degree to which young people can be forced into monocultures of, of sports training. And I, and I, I you know, I, I have a great deal of sympathy for the American model, um, though, of course, the, you know, one, one hates the thing. I was just thinking about it. Imagine if you're a talented athlete who's bad academically, and then finds that you can't essentially qualify to play the game. Now, I don't know how many cases like this there are. I'm sure there are educational institutions which are willing to bend practically every rule in the book to get, you know, the players that they want. But nevertheless, it's a huge pressure on those young people to, as it were, excel in both dimensions. And the experience of failing in either one or the other must be very crushing, especially if, you know, your college funding and everything else hinges on it.
I guess finally, I wanted to ask about basketball's relationship to injury and uh, yeah, the economics of health related to that. I mean, basketball is a contact sport, but there are certain strict limits for that contact. Does that make it safer in terms of the risk of catastrophic injuries compared to other sports? I think um, that is a notable fact of, you know, if you enjoy watching American football and then go to watch a basketball game, you do suddenly realize that it's a little bit like turning vegetarian in the sense that you no longer have the repressed guilt of watching very large men hurt each other and inflict absolutely massive and repeated trauma on their, on, on their opponents in the game. Because broadly speaking, it's a game that isn't that people don't get injured, but it's not a game in which contact, collision, hitting, quote unquote, as the American football phrase has it, is is the norm. And it was quite a shock to me because I do I do habitually watch American football and you don't realise quite how much violence you are you are internalising and then watching any given game, whereas you can happily watch an NBA game for a couple of hours and no one is clearly getting hurt in the process of of, of playing, uh, which is a which is a relief. The statistics bear this out as well if you look at you know, um, injuries um, uh, of school kids playing sports, college athletes or in the professional leagues. It isn't an, it's a sport with, without injuries I and mean, you can't play a high intensity physical game like this, which does involve contact but and between players, but where contact is not essential, you can't play it without, without people getting hurt. Ankle injuries appear to be the most common strain, most alarming, Billy, perhaps are eye injuries, which, which um, you know, players accidentally inflict on each other. But no, it seems on that score, it's not one of the sports like rugby and um, or American football, which have to reckon with trauma, head injury, lasting damage from playing the game as a as a um, you know an, an almost necessary side effect of the of, of the sport. Um, that too is you know testified to by the fact that that some players are still playing it clearly in their late 30s, even early 40s, um, which will be hard to do. It's very, very difficult to do. Only in extremely exceptional cases in American football does anyone survive that long because the damage the body takes is just too great. Yeah, I'll admit I think about this, watching my son play various sports. And even when it comes to soccer, I mean, soccer is a game where you're encouraged to use your head to slam the ball into the goal. And sometimes I think, I wonder if that's... Uh, such a wise idea, and this is, and we now play with a much lighter ball. When the you know um, soccer 20, 30, 40 years ago was playing with a much heavier ball, which when waterlogged was like a very large object, very heavy object moving fast. And the other thing in soccer is the kicking. You know, I mean, the European and Latin American players in particular are notorious for the amount of drama and theatrics that goes on. But if you speak to anyone who's actually played soccer at a professional or semi-professional level, they'll tell you you need to be heavily built to survive the amount of contact that um, that goes on in the mm. professional game. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's much more contact sport than you would imagine um, from, you know, from the general idea. Basketball does seem to be somewhat exceptional in, in this respect in that it's, you know, particularly low, um, low level of hazard. Yeah. Unfortunately, you need to also have the stature for it. And that's something you just genetic lottery. I don't know if, uh, yeah, don't know if my family uh, will qualify for that in any in any way. But we should probably stop here. But uh, yeah, maybe we'll do uh, other sports in the future. Ping pong is a possibility, maybe. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. 
Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Tooze, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TOOZE at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.